Well, we have good news and we have bad news. The good news is that was a great lunch. <laughs> the bad news was, that was a big lunch. Y'all going to be able to hang with me this afternoon? Okay, take some deep breaths. Hope you add a little caffeine with your lunch. And uh, uh, we'll get ready to go into this. I'd like to have you take your, your uh, outline pamphlet here and turn back with me to the back to the section on the steward of life plan that we looked at last night. Y'all with me? These are divided into these seven tracks. The first two, so if you go on, oh, these are numbered. How about this? Page 17. You see them at the bottom there? There it is. So on page 17 of 26, you'll see track number one. And I hope you've had a chance to look through that and perhaps complete that uh, last night or this morning, as well as track number two. We covered these first two keys last night, and there is the work for you to do. You turn the page and you see track three is on intimacy, which we talked about here this morning. Um, how we experience the gift of intimacy at the top. Some, on a moment of confession of where there's stagnancy in our life. And then an opportunity to make a commitment. My first step is, going back exactly to what um, we were just talking about. What's the, what's the next thing that I do? And so under my commitment, in each one of these commitments, what is the first step? What is the one thing I can do? to begin the process of being a better steward of my relationship here in this particular instance with God through intimacy. And then on track four, which we just finished with before lunch, the gift of certainty, a confession of those voices that we're listening to, and then again a commitment to come against that distortion and reclaim the true image of who we are in Christ. What is your first step? And then at the bottom of each of these, some suggested daily disciplines, things that you can do and incorporate into your own life on a daily basis. Um, so here's what the afternoon looks like. We are going to look at keys five and six, and, um, and then we're going to take a break. And what I love on the schedule is when we're done with this next session, there is a, oh, what's the name of, what, what do they call it? A uh, nutrition break, because we will be starving in an hour, won't we? We should be desperate for something to eat. So um, we'll take a nutrition break, and then we'll come back, and we're going to do in the last session. The last session is actually scheduled for quite a bit longer than what we're going to take. So you're going to get to go home a little bit early. In the last session, we're going to look at the seventh key, which will not take us a long time. And I'm going to give you each a few moments then. As you see, the last two pages here, pages 24 and 25, is a summary where you have the opportunity for all seven of these keys to write a very short, brief statement of commitment. It is that one step that you're going to take. From steward to owner, one kingdom living, intimacy with God, self-image in Christ, presence with my neighbor, and steward of creation, and warrior. For each one of those, a chance to just write a very brief commitment of saying, Lord, this is, what, this is how my life is going to look different from the time I leave here today. I really would like to give you an opportunity, and we'll have plenty of time to do this, even if you have to just sit quietly for 15 minutes or so, to make sure you, give your, you have one thing you've committed to in each of these areas. And then we're going to close by dedicating this set of commitments back to God that we really might leave here committed to a life that looks different than the one 
with which we came. Everybody okay with that? Okay. As I say, usually say, that's good, because that's what we're going to do. But I want to give you a little sense of what's coming. You can get an idea of that. That last session won't take all that long. But I want to leave here with this mutual sense of commitment. Because when we commit to things together, we also have a sense of accountability. We stood before my brothers and sisters in Christ and before God and made a commitment. And now let's go out and live accordingly. So that's the, that's the agenda. All right. So between now and our nutrition break, we will talk about this next key. This is now key number five, from means to ends, unlocking the shackle of the need to manipulate. Let's see what this looks like. So back to our map. We all know the map by now. We've looked at the steward leader in the presence of God, a relationship number one, the steward leader in the, relation, in, in the mirror, which is our relationship with ourself, and now we're looking at this third area that God created us for rich and whole relationships with one another. What does it mean as we're being transformed as faithful stewards in this area and we're called into a role of leadership? What is the steward leader in relationship? And again, we'll have a gift, we'll have a temptation, and we'll have some disciplines. I'm nothing if not consistent, huh? All right, the gift. The gift I believe that God gives us in relationship to one another is the gift of presence. Presence. It means we get to be with each other. It means we physically have the opportunity to be present with one another in relationship. Now, for some of you, that may not be good news. Because sometimes it's hard to be present with people in relationship. But I do believe that there is something about presence that is unique to the gift that God gave us in this area. And here's how I put it. It is seeing relationships as ends in themselves. So let's talk a little bit about that. We're told that we are to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. Uh, we know that Jesus is a great commandment, right? The first commandment, the first part of the great commandment is what? And by the way, if you don't know it, it's on the wall. You should love the Lord your God with, uh, say it together, all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and all your mind. And the second is, you shall love your neighbor as you love yourself. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. And I think, to me, this is, this is where the, the, the interrelationship of these keys all kind of come together. It's from the second level gift to the third. We have said that we start with intimacy with God, because we know who God is, because we know who God is and we have intimacy with God, we can love ourselves, right? We know who we are in Christ. And so because we know who God is and we know that he loves us, now we can love ourselves. Because we love God and because we can now love and accept ourselves, we can open ourselves up and are set free that we can pour ourselves out in love for one another. They all hold together. And it's very important that they do. Because if we miss any one of those first or second one, the third one never happens. Here's kind of what it looks like. The third level of relational wholeness flows from the other two. If our first sphere is out of balance, if our, understand, if our intimacy with God gets out of whack, and we are just doing, and we have no time for being, if we're burnt out and stressed out with all the stuff that we're doing, if we're caught up in the life of being a producer, we cannot love our neighbor. 
There's no time for it, but our spiritual life is all messed up. Everything flows out of our love for God. Everything flows out of that intimacy. And in the second sphere, if we are owner leaders, if we own our, our jobs and we own our reputations, then we're not free to love the people around us. If you love your job, no, excuse me, if you own your job, the people that work for you, it's essential that they do what you need them to do for you to be successful, right? Because it's my job, and I own it, and this is my identity. We can't love the people around us if we're not free in relationship to who we are and our self-image. So I believe what Jesus is saying is, look, love God with all your heart and be intimate with him. Love yourself because God loves you and be free in your relationship with yourself. And if you do those two things, it's going to be the most natural thing in the world to just love your neighbor. Just pour yourself out in service to your neighbor. The third really does flow from the first two. <laughs> I love this. My graphic designer came up with this picture and he goes, Scott, I love this picture. Because I was trying to get a picture of absolute exasperation. And this is what he came up with. And here's why. Here's a statement. See if you agree with me on this. The owner leader who needs their job for their own self-worth and is driven to produce will wreak havoc on his or her organization. Think about this now. The leader that owns their job that needs to be successful in order to prop up their own self-worth and who is absolutely driven to produce to make sure that happens will absolutely wreak havoc on their organization. And we have them, I hate to say it, kind of have them all over the place. We have a lot of Christian leaders today whose identity is all wrapped up in their job, who believe that for them to be successful, they've got to produce and produce and produce. And they spend 70 and 80 hours at work, and they expect everybody else to spend 70 and 80 hours at work. And we can't fail, and we can't be unsuccessful, because that's going to hurt me and my reputation. They don't say this verbally, but this is how they, how they live. And they burn through people. What is it about Christian organizations that makes us burn through people? But we do, don't we? I talk to more people that have been wounded, beat up, chewed up, and spit out by Christ-centered ministries, and it just, it just breaks my heart. Why do we do this? Well, I think in part, we have this notion, again, that I'm working for the Lord, and therefore I can justify this whole drivenness, this whole production sense of things, this whole idea of pushing people to the very brink because, we, because we're working for a bigger purpose. As we've said before, if we're working for a bigger purpose, it should redefine, shouldn't it, the way in which we work instead of drive it. So what does it really mean to love our neighbor? Let's see if I can, make, if I can give you an example of this from Luke 18, 35 to 43. Um, you, you know the story, but let me just real quickly reference it here. I give you guys a lot of credit, don't I? But I know you know this story. Luke 18, 35 to 43. Very short, little, simple story. You've all heard it. Um, As Jesus approached Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard the crowd going by, he asked what was happening. They told him Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. So he called out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Those who led the way rebuked him and told him to shut up. He says, be quiet, but really told him to shut up. But he shouted all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. 
Jesus stopped and ordered the man to be brought to him. When he came near, Jesus asked him, what do you want me to do for you? Lord, he said, I want to see. Jesus said to him, receive your sight. Your faith has healed you. Immediately, he received his sight and followed Jesus, praising God. And when all the people saw it, they also praised God. So here's why I love, I just love this, this, uh, Bible, this, uh, this Bible story. Here's how, here's how I envision what is happening here. The disciples have an agenda. They have got to get Jesus from one end of Jericho to the other end of Jericho. They have appointments. They have meetings. They are important people. They have got schedules to keep. And so they are frantically trying to get Jesus through the crowd to get him through Jericho so he can stay on schedule. And they know that they'll probably be successful in doing this as long as nobody asks to be healed. Because he always stops, right? And so here you can imagine the disciples. They're shuffling Jesus through the crowds. They're, oh, sorry, sorry, coming through, coming through. You know, Jesus is coming through. And they're making the way for him. They're working him through the crowds, working through the crowds. And they're almost through Jericho. And all of a sudden, this guy at the side of the road starts yelling, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And the disciples go, oh, no. Oh, no. Somebody go shut that guy up. So one of the disciples sneaks over and says, look, look, buddy, look, buddy, we really got to get Jesus through. He's really busy today. He didn't have time to stop. Could you just kind of keep it down a little bit? And he looks up and he goes, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And through the crowd... All the best intentions of the disciples, Jesus hears him, and he stops. I can see a couple of the more engineer-minded, linear-thinking disciples going, ah, that's it, that's it. No chance now, keep it on schedule, here we go. And Jesus says, bring him over, and so, okay, so they go over, and they bring the guy over, and sure enough, Jesus takes time, asks him some questions, gets to know him a little bit, what would you like me to do for you? like to be healed. Jesus heals him. Man praises God. Everybody rejoices. God's being praised. God's being glorified. The disciples are all frustrated and upset. What was the difference in this story between what Jesus saw and, and how the disciples encountered this man at the side of the road? Well, here's an interpretation I would just like to share with you for, um, for, to, to illustrate the point we're trying to make. I believe that the disciples saw this man, now think about this for a minute, they, they saw and encountered this man at the side of the road in the static moment of what was happening. They had their agenda. They had things they needed to accomplish, and he was an obstacle in their way. Isn't that right? He was an obstacle. That's why they told him to shut up. They saw him and encountered him in just this moment, and when they evaluated his role in their life in this moment, he was an obstacle that needed to be gotten out of the way. Jesus, on the other hand, I believe, when he hears this man cry out and he looks over through the crowd and he sees this blind man at the side of the road, I think what Jesus saw was a little boy who was born blind, who had no chance of ever having a life. He saw a young man who never went to school, 
and who gave up any chance of being married, having a job, being a part of society. He saw an older man who had been cast out on the side of the road of society, who had to have somebody lead him every single day so he could sit in the dust and cry out for one person to have some mercy on him every single day. He saw a man who had no future, who had no hope. You see, Jesus encountered him in the entirety of this man's life, in his journey. And he decided he needed to enter into that and heal him. Big difference, isn't it? The question that I have is how do we encounter and see the people that we interact with every day? It's so easy for us in this hectic world in which we live to see the people around us in the static moment and how that, in that static moment, how they impact my agenda. Instead of asking the question, I wonder what's happening in that person's journey. It changes dramatically the way in which we encounter the people around us. I think the only way I know that I can truly love my neighbor is if I ask God to give me eyes to see this person as they see them in the context of that bigger journey. When I see people in a static moment, most of the time they get in my way. Okay? If I'm needing to get to the store on time, the person in front of me doing 35 and the 45, I'm seeing that person in a very static moment. And they are an obstacle. And I repent for things that I think about as I fly around them and cut them off, Right? When we're in a grocery store in a 15 or, 15 or less uh, line, the person in front of us has 22 things and wants to cash a third-party out-of-state check, I see them in a static moment, and I want to strangle them because I've got to get through this line. We're constantly being tempted to see people and encounter people from the viewpoint of our agenda and this, this moment instead of wondering what is going on in their life today. And how can I enter into that to maybe make a difference? Doesn't that shift everything? I'm going to tell you one more little story. It's a hard one for me to tell, but, but it's, it's just so glaring. Especially, you know, I find the more you teach this, the more God just keeps pushing it, pushing it on top of you. Um, gosh, it's so frustrating. But it's a journey. It's a journey. So my wife and I are traveling someplace. I don't remember exactly where, but... Um, we had a significant uh, delay in a flight. And it was going to cause me to miss a connection, which was going to cause me possibly to miss an opportunity um, to share with some folks. And I really wanted to be there. And so there were, two, there were two people at the counter, two women, you know, working at the counter, Alaska Airlines, great airline, love Alaska Airlines, they were working at the counter there. And, of course, everybody's in line trying to figure out what's going on and how they can reconnect and all that. And they were frantically trying to help people out. And they didn't have all the answers, and they didn't know when it was going to go, and they didn't know what the mechanical problem was. And people were getting really frustrated. And finally, they kind of took care of everyone. And they got everybody just to kind of sit down and wait. So I'm sitting with my wife, and I'm, you know, five minutes is going by, ten minutes is going by, and I'm going, okay, this is ridiculous. We, we've got to know. We've got to figure out what's going on because, why? I'm an important person, right? I've got to get someplace. Here I am, right with my friends, the disciples. And furthermore, I'm a 75K gold member of Alaska. I mean, they, they should let me fly the plane if I want to. You know, I'm just a top tier with these people. And so I'm sitting there holding my boarding pass, and I'm just... I'm just crumpling it like this. 
And every minute that goes by, I'm getting more and more frustrated with the situation. And finally, I decided that, you know, this is just incompetence. Because I had an agenda they weren't delivering. And I stood up, and I'm walking over to the counter. And I'm, I'm walking up to one of the two ladies. There's nobody else at the counters. Everybody's sitting down. And I'm walking up toward her, and I'm thinking in, 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 in a godly, Jesus-pleasing way, I am going to give her a piece of my mind, right? Because this is not right. Something's got to happen. And I'm getting up there. I'm not kidding you. I was like three steps from slamming my boarding pass, I probably wouldn't have slammed it, but setting my boarding pass down in front of her and letting her know kind of what I thought of this whole situation. And all of a sudden, this guy comes up. And, and he kind of walks up between the two and gets about three feet from him. And just as I'm about to do my little speech, he walks up and looks at these ladies and he goes, he says, you know, I just want the two of you to know how much we all appreciate what you're doing. I'm not kidding you. And he said, I know this has really been a stressful time. You guys have done a great job. We really appreciate you. And by the way, I'm going to go down to Starbucks and get something. Can I get you guys anything? And I'm standing there with my boarding pass, just about to tell her. And of course, you know, I did this. And just sat right down. And as I sat there, I looked over, I, I'm yeah, really honest, I get choked up every time I think about it. It was, it was one of the most beautiful examples of somebody seeing people not in a static moment. But understanding that these were two ladies, their whole life journey, they worked really hard for us, they were probably as frustrated as we were, and he just breathed life into these two people. Isn't that incredible? That's what I think we're called to do when Jesus says we're to love our neighbor. What journey are they on? Help me, Lord, to be a part of that. We see it a little bit in 1 Samuel 16. But the Lord said to Samuel, this is going to anoint the new king, don't consider his appearance or his height, for I've rejected him. Remember? Um, they brought the biggest, tallest guy in, the big strapping first son that was supposed to be the king. And, Jesus, and God says, no, that's not him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at outward appearance but the Lord looks at the heart. God, give us eyes to look past the outward appearance of people and to, and to know the heart, to see the journey. So the prayer that I would suggest we have is twofold. It's to develop the heart of a fellow traveler. The day that I decided I would try my best every single day to look at every person around me as a fellow traveler on a journey changed my perspective significantly. I really am, I can be a very impatient person. It changed the way that I prayed, for instance, when I'm sitting on an airplane, I'm always one of the first people on because I'm a what again? 75K gold, right? So I'm the first one on, I get to sit by the window and there's a seat, you know, middle seat there when I'm back in coach, there's a middle seat there. And, I, you know, I first always used to pray, dear God, please don't let anybody sit here. And then secondly, please let somebody sit here who doesn't like to talk. So I can just put my headphones on and do my work and all that kind of thing. And that's a static moment view of life, isn't it? And instead, to be able to sit there and say, Lord, bring somebody next to me, maybe who needs a word of encouragement. Can I minister into the life of the person next to me? But there's a step beyond that, my friends. 
The step beyond that, the step of humility is to say, and maybe, Lord, bring somebody next to me who can speak into my life. Maybe there's a word you need to be telling me that I need to hear. If so, bring the right person. Change my perspective dramatically. Give us the heart of a fellow traveler. Let us see everybody around us as on a journey and just give us a passion for entering into the journeys of the people around us that together we may go further down the road that God would have for us. And then to be used, and then for the freedom to be used by God to bless them on that journey. What a great way to wake up every morning and say, I am going to encounter a lot of people today, and Lord, if you will give me the right eyes and the right heart, I have the opportunity to enter into the journey of dozens and dozens of people and to bless them on their way. And I'm going to go to bed tonight and just think, wow, what a great day this was. I just journeyed with all kinds of people, maybe for a minute. Maybe it was just a comment. Maybe it was the guy that walked up and thanked the two, the two um, counter attendants. But I'm just going to breathe life into the people around me. I think that's what we do when we develop the heart of a steward. Because this is God's life. This is God's time. These are God's relationships. And I get a chance to enter into them. Isn't that cool? Wouldn't that be a great way to live? Would you love to live every day? Maybe some of you are. And I think we all try to do that from time to time. But what a great way to, to live every day of our life with this journey mentality. Well, of course, the enemy doesn't want us to do this. The enemy was re would really love to have had me tell this person off and feel really justified in doing it, and gone back and seethed in my own anger and self-righteousness. Um, fortunately, the spirit moved in somebody else's life. So what, is the, what does the enemy want? The enemy wants us focused on expediency, on efficiency, on what's good for us. And so we begin to see relationships as means and not ends. You see, if you are a means to something that I need then I can treat you in a static moment. That, that counter attendant was a means to something I needed. I needed to get to this next city, and she was the means, and that's all I cared about. Not about her, but about what she could do in this relationship. The greatest temptation of leadership, I believe, is to treat the people around us as means to our own ends. Now, that's a pretty powerful statement when you start to say greatest. But when I look across my own experience personally and the, and the leaders I work with, leaders, it's so easy for us to begin to see all the people around us as means to get us to where we need to get to so that we can be successful, so that my identity can be propped up on and on and on and on and on. When I start treating people around me as means to an end, it changes the dynamics of the relationship. You've all experienced what it feels like to be the means to somebody else's ends, haven't you? You know what that feels like? Yeah, it's not, it's not fun when you know that you're just, you're just somebody's way of getting what they want. And it's not really you that they value. But that's what we can slip into very easily, even in a Christian setting doing God's work. What happens is that our agenda, our time, and our goals are more important than those of the people around us. And that really, in a harsh sense, is what we have to admit. Why would, why would I see you in a static moment and make you a means to an end? Because my agenda is more important. It's more important than what God's doing in your life or the journey that you're on. So I've got to get your agenda to align with mine. And if I'm the boss, it's pretty easy to do because i got power. But in other relational settings, there's other ways in which we can manipulate one another to get what we want. Does it happen in marriage? Never, right? 
You get caught in these power struggles where all of a sudden a spouse can begin to feel like a means to an end because the other spouse's agenda begins to dominate. It can happen with our kids. It can happen in friendships. Every place we go. I believe the enemy is constantly whispering in our ear, your agenda is more important. You got to get things done. This isn't very efficient. You know, get rid of that relationship. It's not taking you anywhere. It's costing you more than what you want to pay. Right? It's taking too much time in this relationship. Our journey then dominates all other journeys. What we're basically saying is my journey is more important. So, question I have for you this afternoon, what kind of relationships surround you? If you were really honest with yourself, how would your peers describe your relationships with them? How would your kids describe your relationship with them? How would your closest friend describe your relationship with him or her? And how would you most want people in your life to describe your relationships with them? The prayer is that God would give us that heart of a fellow traveler. That when we answered this question, every single one of them would say, oh my gosh, she just breathes life. Breathes life wherever she goes. She's encouraging. She cares about what's happening in my life. I always feel better when when we're together. She's always interested in where I'm going. She's always there to help me along the way. She really makes me feel like I'm really important when we're together. My journey matters to her. He does the same thing to me. You know people like that? You know people that just lift you up and breathe life into you whenever you're around them? Sure you do. Just like you know people that suck life out of you when you're around them. I have two or three people in my life I have to pray every time I'm around them because I know that in 10 minutes I'm going to feel like somebody just put a tube in me and just sucked all the life out of me. They just have their wherever they go. What kind of relationships surround you? What kind of relationships do we want to surround us? And what are the obstacles in our way? What's the primary obstacle that keeps us from having the quality of relationships that reflect the call to love your neighbor? If you're struggling in this area, can you identify what it is that's, that's making it hard for you? Maybe it's pride. Maybe it's a misplaced sense of urgency in the things you need to get done. Um, maybe it's fear. There can be a lot of things that the enemy can throw in our way that can make it hard for us to develop these kinds of journey relationships. Figure out what it is and then make a commitment to overcome it. That could be your commitment that you have right here. But my friends, we could turn the world upside down if every one of God's people was passionate about the journeys of the people around them and said, God, use me to help my neighbor in the journey you have them on. So the discipline is seeking daily to see your neighbor as God sees them and stewarding our relationship as, an, as ends and not means. See, we have to be stewards of our relationships with one another. God gives us one another. And I know sometimes people around us don't seem like gifts. Okay? But they are. Every one of the people around you, you're all gifts to one another. God said, I redeemed the relationships you have with each other, and I give it back to you now. Be a steward of it. And if we're going to steward the relationships we have with one another, then we need to pray every day that God would give us eyes to see our neighbor as they see them and the joy of entering into their journey. Make sense? It's a challenge. But it's a primary heart of Jesus for us. 
When we go into leadership, just a couple of trajectories of what this looks like from a leadership perspective. Steward leaders build and value community as its own end. I believe that you're head of an organization or you're leading a church or anything else in here, you're going to understand that relationships are, the, are of core value of what you do. I don't care if, you, if you're a church or if you make widgets. Relationships are a core value. And you're going to create community just for the sake of the fact that you know that when people are living in relationship with one another, they're going to be more joyful in what they do, in their work and everything else. So what are the challenges of leading your organization in ways that value its community for stewardship reasons and measures the importance of community in kingdom terms? By the way, this measurement thing is really a challenge for us because a lot of this is, is hard to quote-unquote put metrics around. I'm going to lift up one organization just because I'm, I'm just so blessed and proud, and proud of them. Um, are you familiar with Prison Fellowship? Name ring a bell? Chuck Colson's organization? Well, Prison Fellowship has been going through about a two-year transformation internally. Um, and we started strategic planning with them a year and a half ago. And just a real quick story, we had our first meeting in February to do strategic planning for the future of this organization. They had just brought in a brand new president and a whole new team. And Chuck Colson was working on transitioning you know, out more and more and giving more power over to this team. So we met in February, and the primary question, one of the primary questions in the strategic plan was, um, how do we plan for a prison fellowship ministries without Chuck Colson? And in March, we came back together as a strategic team, and we spent some time with Chuck, and we, we talked over the whole process, and we decided this would be a major part of the strategic planning process, so we had a good vision for the future of what it looked like, you know, without Chuck having to be the primary person in this organization. I left in March. We had an April meeting. You know what happened between March and April? Chuck died. Chuck Colson, speaking at an engagement, passes out, has a, a brain aneurysm, and two weeks later, he's gone. And so we come together in April, and it was a real, all of a sudden, the, the hypothetical theoretical issue was right on, right on the table in front of us. They have done a marvelous job of not only transitioning, but they caught the vision of what it means to have a steward-leader culture. And we have had the joy over the last six months, and we've been working for about another year and a half, of looking at every part of prison fellowship and asking the question, what would this look like if we really lived out the values of what it means to be a steward leader in all four of these areas? And they're changing the whole human resources department. They're changing the, the personnel evaluations. They're changing their policies. They're changing their entire fundraising team has completely changed the way in which they're doing it. And they're slowly trying to enculturate what this looks like. And they're wrestling with these questions all the time. How do we measure it? What does it look like? But I just want to encourage you that if, it, if God puts on your heart that it would be an amazing thing to have the whole culture of our organization committed to this understanding of what it means to be a steward leader. Um, there's other organizations out there that are, that are leading the way and trying to figure this out ahead of you. So come join us. Come join us. We don't have got it all figured out. There's tons of questions out there. But the more people that decide that this is what God's calling them to do, the better chance we have to figure it out together. Then the other trajectory is the steward leaders are caretakers then of that community. Organizational effectiveness requires the constant caretaking of the culture, health, and movement of the community it has cultivated. This requires presence, listening, and personal freedom. So again, there's a role of the leader in helping to develop and, and, and uh, maintain the kind of culture that you want in your organization. How are you doing as a caretaker of your community? 
So this fifth key from means to ends, this unlocking the shackles of the need to manipulate, is seeing our neighbor as fellow travelers, and it's the freedom, the freedom to love our neighbor. And I hope with that, some of you have felt a heavy chain fall and felt the freedom to really look at your neighbor in a different way and to love and serve them as Christ would have you do. And six, and key number six. From consumer to caretaker. 29 minutes and you get a nutrition break. From consumer to caretaker. Unlocking the shackles of accumulation. We have been talking about steward, stewardship, and steward leader for probably some five or six hours, seven hours, and guess what? We're finally going to talk about money. And I think that's important, isn't it? This is such a rich, full, somebody at lunch just, just looked across the table and said, this is really about all of life. This is big. And money is a piece of it, an important piece of it, but it's just a part of the story. And I think it comes in this fourth sphere. So back for the final time to our map. We're now down in the lower right-hand corner, the steward leader in God's creation. Once again, a gift, a temptation, and a discipline. I believe the gift that we've been given is the gift of nurture. And I take that out of Genesis chapter 2. When basically God took Adam, put him in the garden, and said, love this thing, nurture this thing, take care of this thing, tend it. Just a little side note. Isn't it interesting that, that something had to happen, that Eden wasn't, in a sense, complete? That God created Eden in such a way that required us to be a part of the creation and actually proactively tend it and take care of it? In other words, the world without humanity was not complete. And the world with humanity just walking around and looking wasn't complete. The only way that God created fully what he wanted to create is with a world with us in it working the land in cooperation with him. That's the full picture. And, and we can't miss that. We're called to be nurturers and caretakers of what God has created. That's, that was his intent. It was never his intent for it to just operate completely without us. And it was never his intent for us to ruin it. It was his intent for us to work with him and nurture it. Believe that? Okay with that? So, we view all of creation as a gift to be nurtured. These two men, they do. Um, it's a godly use of our time and talents, which we'll talk about in a minute. A godly, a generous use of the resources that we have and the care and protection of God's creation. Everything in this created world that God gave us, he calls us to steward, to take care of, to nurture. Because it's not ours, right? It's what? All his. Let's say it all together again. All his. Well, that's a pretty easy picture. So what's the temptation? I believe, and this is a weird word maybe, I believe the temptation that we may face today as Christians is complacency. And I say complacency because we've already heard all this. And we've heard since we were young that the earth is the Lord's and all the things that dwell in it. We're supposed to be stewards and caretakers of it. Um, all of our money belongs to God. And we're just supposed to be good stewards of it. We've been hearing this for a long time. And I think because of it, we can grow pretty complacent. 
Yeah, yeah, I know. I'm supposed to take care of creation. Yeah, yeah. I'm supposed to give it back to God. I know it's all his. Um, and and we, we get this sense in us that maybe, maybe we're doing okay. It's not that really that big of a deal. We're trying our best, and let's just kind of keep muddling through. And I think the enemy loves us just to believe that. Yeah, yeah, you know, you've heard this like your whole life. You're, you're, given, you're given 5%, which is 2% more than the average, and you're volunteering to some places, and that's nice. And, you know, you recycle a little bit. So you're doing fine. You're doing fine. You know, just, just don't worry about those radicals that want you to be all in kind of stuff. Right? Those, those Jesus freaks down there. Don't listen to them. So complacency is our challenge. It's not seeing stewardship in some sense holistically. Now, I don't know. Can anybody figure this, this graphic out? I spit this up here kind of for fun, but it's meant to, it's meant to uh, depict something. Anybody give me any ideas? So first of all, what is it? Shipping a dry dock, right? And the point here, uh, and, and in this, the first book that I wrote, The Stewards in the Kingdom, I had a whole chapter on this. I believe one of our challenges in talking about stewardship is that when you put the ship on the end of the word steward, it immediately moves from who we're supposed to be to what we're supposed to do, right? Stewardship is about doing things. And so just tell me what I need to do. Is 5% enough to tithe? Good stewardship. Is 5% of my time? Good stewardship. Again, if I recycle a little bit and, you know, plant a couple trees, that's good stewardship. Tell me my checklist so I can check it off and say to myself, I'm a good steward because I'm practicing stewardship. And my point is, we need to dock the ship. Because it's not about stewardship. It's about the heart of a godly steward. And you see, then it becomes personal. And then all of a sudden it means, oh, it means I've got to change. It means I've got to think differently. It means my heart has to be transformed. It means I've got to go through some really hard internal things. I've got to let the Holy Spirit change the way I'm thinking and looking and viewing and all the rest of it. I would rather just you tell me what I need to do to practice stewardship, right? Wouldn't that be easier? It'd be a lot easier. And that's what I'm afraid the church has been doing for a really long time. We have stewardship programs, stewardship Bible studies, and they're all kind of about, here's what it looks like, and here's the things you need to do. Now, um, I don't want to get ahead of myself. I'll stop there. So, the challenge here is complacency. You got to love that picture. Isn't that a great picture? I asked my graphic designer, I said, can you come up with a picture that shows complacency? <laughs> he called me over and he goes, Scott, I got it. You're going to love this. And he sends it over to me. I said, yeah, that's pretty much it. <laughs> that's pretty much it. <laughs> A sense of complacency. You know, everything's really going to be okay. I'm not going to worry about that. I'm doing all right. You know, I've, I've done the minimums and all the rest of it. So let's look at some areas of complacency. Here's some types of complacency. Oh my, let's step on, let's step on some toes. Let's talk about time complacency. It's funny, you know, in, in the free time that we've had in between and the breaks and things, I've had at least, at least three, maybe four or even five people that have come up and talked to me and said, are you going to talk about time? Are we going to talk about time? Because that's the real challenge, isn't it? Yeah, we're going to talk about time. Well, we're going to talk about time. So this is, this is our moment to talk about time. Time complacency. Um, we can view time in the same rubric that we viewed uh, financial resources in terms of scarcity or abundance, right? Uh, but it's still 24 hours a day. It's the one great equalizer. Rich people, poor people, no matter who you are, where you are in the world, you each get 24 hours in a day. Nobody gets any more. Nobody gets any less. You can't manufacture more. You can't get it taken away from you, right? You get This is your time. Um, but what does it mean to be a steward of our time? 
Do we really view every minute of our day as belonging to God? And that what we're doing is we're, listen now, we're listening to the owner and we're saying to the owner, how do I spend it? So, here's a little story. Um, and this is, this is such an sh- eye-opener to me. When I, was, um, when I was at the seminary, and Eric will probably be able to relate to who this is, but when I was at the seminary, we had a, a foundation in the Philadelphia area that gave um, generously to a lot of different causes. Um, um, and we had, a, we had a hard time, but always felt like we should be one of those causes. So as a president, I would go and I would meet with the head of this foundation um, and try to make the case as to why the seminary was a really good uh, investment for them and why it fit in with their priorities. The woman who ran this foundation was a dynamic evangelical. I mean, total evangelical. And when I mean dynamic, I mean like, wow, really dynamic. Um, and so on this one moment, I went, one time I went to meet with her, and I took a proposal so we could talk through and kind of laid out my case as to why I really felt we had a project that would fit the foundation's needs. Um, and we went in and sat down, and I'm not kidding you, I had a two-hour appointment with her. I opened with two sentences, and two hours later, she quit talking. Okay? But it was wonderful stuff. I mean, all of a sudden, she took off on the things that they were doing at the foundation and what was happening with her kids and what God was doing and the powerful movement of the Holy Spirit. And she was just a, she's a gregarious, wonderful, warm, engaging woman. But she just kind of got caught up in the moment. And we had a wonderful conversation. Um, and all of a sudden, she looks at her watch and she goes, oh my goodness, I am so sorry. We're out of time. And I didn't even get a chance to find out what you wanted to talk to me about. And I said, no, it's no problem. It's no problem. And she said, look, we're, we're going to set another appointment. So we got out our, you ready for this? Day timers. Remember that? Pencil, paper. We got our day timers and looked at them, and we found about three weeks down the road another date. Fit work for her, work for me. I put it in my schedule. And I'm, I'm, I'm folding it up, and I'm putting it into my briefcase. And she says to me, now, Scott, you need to know that when this day comes... I'm going to start my day by opening my schedule, and I'm just going to simply say, Lord, this is what I have planned. What do you have for me to do today? And if he puts on my heart that he has something more important for me to do, I'm going to need to call, and we'll need to reschedule. And I said, oh, that's, yeah, I, wonderful. I understand fully. No problem. So I put my stuff in my briefcase, said goodbye. I walked out in the lobby, elevator doors open. I get on the elevator, elevator doors close, and I go, oh, come on! Are you kidding me? Who can run their business this way? I mean, really, how can I run the seminary of every day? I open it up and say, you know, and in fact, I was joking. I was telling Tom a little bit about this story, and I said, yeah, what if, what if yesterday morning I opened up my daytime and said, well, Lord, I'm supposed to be in Edmonton. This is what I want to do. But you want me to go fly fishing? Okay, I'll call Tom and say, gee, God put on my heart. You know, we're important people. We have schedules to keep and things to do, right? I have really come to realize over the years um, that I think she was on to something. I think she was on to something. And I've tried to figure out why it is so hard for me to, to let God have my schedule. Here's the, here's the picture of what I think happens in my life a lot. I wake up in the morning, um, do my devotions usually, um, and then I have my schedule, my to-do list there, and my prayer is, Lord, I want to do your work today. 
I want to do your work today. And then I start in. And I get an hour or so into it, and I can just see God up there saying, oh, Scott, there's somebody you need to talk to. But Scott's not listening, because Scott's doing God's work. And a little while later, God says, oh, oh, I want to bring somebody to mind, because you need to email this person. That person over there needs to hear from you. Here's a door I'd love to open for you. Scott, Scott! And Scott's not listening, because he's doing God's work. Right? I've got my agenda, and I'm just going through, and I'm clicking through, and I get done at the end of the day, and I go to bed at night, and I go, oh, I did God's work today. And sometimes I think he's up there going, oh, man, there's so much more I had for you today. There's so much more I wanted you to do today. There's so much more I could have blessed you today. Can we talk tomorrow <laughs> as you go through the day? What would it mean for us? throughout the day to just continue to lay before God and say, okay, Lord, I'm, I'm going into this two-hour piece of work right now. Just, just is, this, is this how I spend my time? Just checking in. Just want to hear your Holy Spirit guide me, Lord. This is your time, not my time. I'm trying more and more to just listen throughout the day and be willing to just say, you know what? You're right. I think I need to go do this. Hasn't God from time to time brought into your heart somebody you just need to call? All of a sudden, somebody pops into your head an email you need to send, and you find out the next day, they said, I can't, you just can't believe what it meant to me that you emailed me today. I just, you, it's exactly the word I needed to hear. How many times have we heard that? That was exactly the word that I needed to hear. And it's because God puts on our hearts, if we're listening, the way he would have us use our time. So I find time a huge challenge. Um, we have to be responsible but my friends, it's his. It's really his. Environmental complacency. I can get myself in a lot of trouble here. So I'm just going to say a few words from my heart and then we can move on. Um, I do believe that we're called to be caretakers of God's creation. Um, I do believe that... Um, that we're going to be held accountable for how we have taken care of the, of the garden that he has given us to live in. And the little circle on the right says obedience and not eschatology. And I put that in there for my friends who have an eschatology that believes that basically say, look, the world's going to all get burned up at the end anyway, so why should we care, take care of it today? And I say, you know what, it doesn't matter if it's going to get burned up today. It actually doesn't even matter if you knew that Jesus was going to come back tomorrow. Today, we're called to be caretakers of God's creation. And what does that mean? And that might mean different things for different ones of us, but if you want a great resource, you can look at the Evangelical Environmental Network, which I happen to chair the board of, and I think very highly of the organization, that's really trying to take good, solid evangelical theology and mesh it with a really passionate care for creation. Now, we don't love the creation, but we care for the creation um, because God created it for us. And so we've got to think about what does it mean to be um, uh, caretakers of this environment, caretakers of this world in which we live. Uh, if you own a facility, a lot of good questions about how well is your church being witnessing that it's a caretaker of its environment? How well is your business or even your own family? Are you bearing witness in the way in which you live your life in this world that, that this is my father's world and, and this is a gift he's given us and I'm going to take really good care of it because he cares about it. A few more types. Financial complacency, uh, reverting to secular policies and standards, and financial decisions without prayer for discernment. So just real quick, 
Secular policies and standards simply means that when it comes to taking care of our money, I'm just going to pretty much do what the world does and tells me to do, and I'm not going to look at kingdom values. I think we need to ask some of those questions. In terms of financial decisions without prayer for discernment, I had this hit me between the eyes, too, about, about, f- about five years ago. Um, I'm sorry to tell these stories, but hopefully it helps illuminate a little bit some of the points that I want to make, because God speaks to me, again, through, uh, mostly through stupid things that, that I do. Um, so we lived in Scotland for, thir- no, I'm sorry, we lived, in, we lived in Scotland for four years. We lived in Philadelphia for nine years. And in Philadelphia, I kind of gave up hunting and fishing, which I love doing, because if you try to go hunt and fish in Pennsylvania, you're there with 5,000 of your closest friends. Um, and I was born and raised in Wyoming, where you could hunt all day and never see another person. Um, so I waited, and I waited, and I waited, and I waited. And finally, God moves us back to Spokane in 2002. And so, number one on my agenda, number one on my agenda, the day, starting the day that I got to Spokane, what do you think it was? Buy a truck, right? I needed a pickup truck badly, badly. I hadn't had a truck for ages. And of course, if you're a hunter and a fisherman and you live in the Northwest, you have a pickup truck. So I had all this pent up 13 years of not owning a pickup truck. So we were in Scotland for four years before that. I didn't know what a pickup truck was. And we got to Spokane, we got settled in, and, and the, you know, the day came when, okay, this is my search for my pickup truck. And it was the first year that the Dodge Ram, where's my friend that owns the car business? Is he still here? There he is. So it was the first year that Dodge came out with their Hemi engine Ram pickup. And if you remember it, the, the dome on the hood was huge. The grill was like this big and this tall. It's this big, massive truck. Well, I bought a black one. And I bought a long bed, and I put a black canopy on it. And my kids called it Darth Vader, you know. It was the biggest thing you've ever seen. I mean, it just, when you, you I, there were, if, if I got, came to a stoplight, and there was a little small car in front of me, I could literally almost suck them into my radiator. It was so big. And I, I could, I was, I could bomb around Spokane. Everybody got out of my way. I was in this big truck. Um, obviously a lot of pent-up need for pickups. Um, and so I went and parked it, um, and I'll actually tell the story, tell his name, because it was really, um, Bill Robinson, president of Whitworth University, and I was working with Bill um, there, and I went in and had a meeting with him, uh, and when we were done, he was walking out to lunch time, and said, Bill, Bill, you gotta see my, you gotta see what I bought, you, you gotta see this truck, I was so proud of it. And so I take him over to the parking lot, and I walk up, and I say, look at this truck, isn't this amazing? And Bill's comment to me was, wow, Um, you're supporting a lot of terrorists with that, aren't you? Ha, ha, ha. And I thought, oh. And I knew it's kind of a joking thing. And as he walked away, I kind of thought, hmm. Of course, the implication was, you know, what kind of gas mileage are you getting? How much, you know, the environment you're sucking up? What all is happening here? And I went home, and it really bothered me. And I went home and realized that in that entire buying decision, in my passion and joy of buying the biggest truck I could possibly buy, I never once prayed about it. Never once. I never once said, okay, now, Lord, this is what I want. You know, is this the right thing for me to be doing? I was just determined to get that big truck. And since then, I was getting like nine miles to the gallon. And, um, and it, was a, it was an eye-opener to me how easy it is in our, in, our, in our exuberance 
to make a lot of decisions with our finances without really sitting down and laying them before God and say, is this really the right thing for me to do? Is this really the right purchase? Do I really need this? Or do I need this one? Can I live more simply? Is there a better way for me to spend these resources? And that's been a, an eye-opener for me. I still have a pickup truck, but it's much smaller, much better gas mileage. And it took me about three years, and I finally, I, finally got, I finally got rid of it, in part because as I became more and more aware of, of the need to care for the environment, I just couldn't, I just couldn't square them anymore, and I just finally had to, had to say no. But how I wish I would have asked that question. Isn't that true? Back when we were first making those decisions. Financial decisions without discernment. And finally, a little bit about talent, complacency. Not having a mission, vision, purpose, or affirmed calling. Um, we, as individuals, need to understand what God's calling us to do. Are you using the skills and talents that God gave you to their fullest? And this is a real, this is a real tough one, because I know so many people that are in jobs that pay pretty well, but give them no satisfaction. That, that's outside of the range of the real skills and passion that God gave them. And they say, what am I supposed to do? I have to take care of my family. I have a good job. It's paying well. I'm not real happy or fulfilled, but you know what? It's, it's what I need to be doing right now. At some point, I think we need to get real serious about the fact that God gives us just a little bit of life on this planet. You saw before the, uh, the rope, right? The rope with a red part on it and then a the little dot in the middle. Um, we don't have a lot of time on this planet. And God gives us skills and abilities and talents. He says, take care of these. Be a steward. And invest yourself in your skills and your talents. And I'll take care of you. Remember, everything we're saying is prefaced on that one assumption. Be obedient. I'll take care of you. And I think being obedient is using the skills and talents that God gave us to the fullest. We all know people who left jobs and careers to go pursue something that they just loved. And maybe they didn't make as much money and maybe they weren't as successful, but they walk around with a big grin on their face because they just love what they do every day. So are you a steward of your skills, your talents that God gave you? Um, and moving from steward, and, steward to owner of our skills and abilities. You know, again, these are God's. Put them in service of God and see what he will do with them. So, do you bear witness to the heart of a godly steward in your use of your time, your finances, your talents, and your care for the environment. A discipline. Daily submitting time, talents, and resources to God's work and leading a lifestyle that reflects a love and care for God's creation. I think we need to pray against this every single day because this is the place where the enemy is most often will get to us the quickest is when we start taking back our resources, taking back our time, taking back things that we think we can own and control, and we start down that path. This is where a lot of second kingdoms are built, isn't it, in this area? Most second kingdoms have got a lot of this stuff in them. So figure out what's in your second kingdom, walk away, give it back to him, and pray every day, Lord, give me a heart of a steward toward all these different things. You know what the uh, fastest growing... Um, Fastest growing construction, okay, I might say this. The, the, the part of the industry in the United States that's buying the most land and building the most buildings of any other industry in the United States, you know what it is today? Storage units. Storage units. Those you, those you store places, they are buying land faster and building buildings faster than any other industry in the United States. Isn't that incredible? We build three and four and 5,000 square foot houses and we don't have enough room for our stuff. 
So now we have to rent storage units to stick them in. God help us. Set us free. Quickly, trajectories. Um, two things to say about what happens when God is changing our hearts in this fourth area and we go into a position of leadership. I believe steward leaders marshal resources effectively. It changes the way in which we look at the assets, if you will, that we have in any given organization. Are there new ways that you will look at the resources, including people, time, physical plant, through a stewardship lens? You have a beautiful church here, right? And you're trying to be a good steward of this beautiful church. You, you, you've you've uh, designed it in such a way that there's a multitude of different things that can happen in these rooms. I loved your comment about don't worry about you know, spilling coffee on our carpet. I mean, how often do we go into a church and we're uncomfortable because we've got to watch all the nice furniture and everything? This is still a lovely, lovely church, and yet you can, you can get pretty creative in here. There's about nothing you can't do that you can't clean up, which is pretty nice. So how do we think about all of life in terms of how do I steward everything that I have, um, especially when we're leaders, and we need to, to help people be good stewards of, of what they do? What conclusions would you draw regarding how a steward leader might employ these resources in a way that's consistent with the theology that we've developed. And then the second trajectory, steward leaders create organizational consistency and witness. And this is, I just, I just think this is a, a real good gut check for us. Consistent action, consistent attitudes, and consistent policies. Again, if you're part of any organization, and I would even say this is really important and true for your family, that if you want to be a faithful steward of all these areas, how consistent are you living that out across all the different areas of your life? Organizations look at not only what they do, but the attitudes and the policies that they have. Oftentimes we have human resource policies and other policies that, that, that conflict with what it means to be a faithful steward. We might have attitudes that conflict with it. Let me give you a quick little example. I was meeting with a, um, the head of a, a, a president of a university, actually, who was struggling desperately with this idea of being driven and, all the, and, and, and needing to get a lot of work done, totally caught up in that drivenness. And he quietly confessed to me. He said, Scott, I have a hard time even confessing this, but he said, I struggle with resentment when my people take their vacations. I know they're supposed to. I know they need to. I know it's important. But I don't. And we got all this work to do. And here are my key people are taking two-week vacation. The attitudes that we can let seep into our organization that conflict with what it means to be a faithful steward of our resources. So watch the consistency in your organizations and make sure that your witness is clean across the board. When the world looks at your organization or your church, does it see a consistent witness to godly stewardship on each of these levels? How does it affect your strategic planning? If you look at where God believes you're leading you three years from now, how does it reflect your stewarding use of all of your resources? How does it affect your master site planning, your buildings? Um, we could go on and on. We have a whole session on the impact of what it means to be a faithful steward to the way we do master site planning and, we, and the way we view growth. But the question might be, instead of building two new buildings, is there a way in which we can renovate what we have, use it more efficiently and effectively, and put those construction dollars into work for the kingdom? All kinds of ways in which we have to ask some very hard questions when we think about being a steward. How does this affect your budgeting priorities? You know, you always say you can tell um, the heart of a faithful steward by looking at their budget. Um, would it be okay with you? Uh, you know, if, you're, if we sat down today and, and maybe I put it on the overhead here and looked at your checkbook, your check register for the last month. Um, 
I tell pastors, I get myself in real trouble, I'm going to quit here in just a minute because I don't want to get off on a tangent, but um, you know, we, we haven't talked about the issue of whether or not, oh, should I even bring this up? Should I? Um, br- the issue of whether or not pastors should know what their people give. Right? Real touchy issue. I do pastors' conferences, and I get, they're on the edge of their seat when I ask that because uh, there's such a division in that whole different area. And, and you're probably not going to be surprised for me to say that I passionately believe that a pastor should absolutely know what their people give. Okay? Pastors should absolutely know what their people give. Now, can I make my case for it in about 30 seconds, and we'll have our nutritional break? Think of what we're saying when the pastor says, I don't want to know what my people give. And I usually ask him, why? And what's the usual answer? I'll be biased. Right? I'll be biased. I, I'm not going to treat the person that gives a lot of money the same as a person that doesn't, that doesn't give near as much money. It's going to bias my ability to be a pastor to them. And my response is this. Okay, so let me get this straight. If you had a parishioner who was having a, an affair, would you want them to tell you about it? And confess it? Oh, absolutely. If you had somebody who was embezzling money from their company, would you want them to be able to come in and tell you about it and repent so you can minister? Absolutely. Is there any sin out there that you would have one of your parishioners commit that you would want them to say, oh, I can't tell my pastor about that? No. That's what I'm here. I'm their shepherd, right? My door is wide open. Any problem you have in life, you should be able to come in here and you should be able to lay out your heart and your soul to me and know that I'm going to minister to you. But if I know how much you give, oh, then I'm going to be biased. Isn't that strange? And I'll have pastors look at me, and you know what they'll say? Yeah. Yeah. I have to confess it. That's the extent to which money has become distorted you know, in our society. I can know anything at all about you as a pastor and still minister to you, but if I know that you're giving less or more than you should, it's going to bias my ability to minister to you. So we've, we've just got to jettison all of that. The reason I think it's important for pastors to know this is because our giving is a huge indication of our spiritual life, isn't it? It's a huge indication of where we are. We just, everything we've talked about for the last day and a half says that, the, what, that what happens out of my spirit, what I give to my church is a big expression of my understanding of what it means to be a faithful steward, my relationship with my resources and everything else. It's also then a great indicator of a change in my life. If somebody has been giving $1,000 a month for the last five years and all of a sudden in the next six months they give $300 a month, something happened. Something happened. And they may never tell you what happened, but it's impacting the way they give. Why wouldn't a pastor look at that and go to them and say, man, are you guys okay? Is there anything I pray for you on? I notice that there, there's been a change in your giving pattern. I just want to see what's happening in your life. But we like to keep money to ourselves, don't we? Money's our affair, not the church's affair, and that's two kingdoms. That's just two kingdoms. So when we think about how this affects our budgeting priorities. This is not only as an organization, but it's our own family, isn't it? We really want to be able to come before God and lay it out there. I, I go so far, it's a little facetious, but I go so far as to say a pastor ought to set an appointment with every parishioner in their church once a year and sit down with them and ask them to bring their tax return. And just open it up and say, here's what I made last year, here's where we spent it, here's where we invested it, here's what my tax return was, and just, and just pray together and say, Lord, you know, pastor, help me to be a better steward. I just, this is God's and not mine, right? 
Am I, am I being a good steward and help me where I'm not? Why wouldn't we do that? But we're a long ways, aren't we, from being at that place. So just think about the fact that your, your budget, the way you spend your money, the decisions say an awful lot about where you are. And how, how can you lead your organization to be more consistent witness and a call to be faithful stewards? All right, I've got myself way more trouble than I needed to. From consumer to caretaker, unlocking the shackles of accumulation. And I love this phrase, and I'd love to leave this with you as you go away and, and, and get something to eat. Um, and that is developing a heart that is rich toward God. Isn't that beautiful? Help us develop a heart that is just rich toward God. I think that's our prayer as faithful stewards, that we would do that. It's the freedom to really live this generous life for other people, for God's sake, and for his glory. Okay, I think we're at a break. Oh, yes? Do we have time? Okay, well, we have time for a few questions then. I'm sorry, I know you're starving. I'll let you get to the food in a minute. <laughs> questions, thoughts, comments on that? From some of you that made, wanted to make sure that we talked about time, did we talk about time okay? Did we get to some of the issues? Yes. Oh, another confession back here in the back. Um, just a brief question. Like, if God is dealing with me in my heart about these things, but I'm married to a woman, obviously, who may be further down the path than me, or maybe not as far, um, how do you make these decisions uh, together as family? And uh, I know there's a lot of this, not necessarily related to life, uh, or sorry, to finances, but can be applicable to um, how you spend your time as a father and that kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. A lot of these things are just not just individual, but they're definitely... And, and most of the time shouldn't just be individual, right? We have to live our lives out in the context of the community. Yeah, and I, I wish I had a great answer for you, but I would, I would say it's likely that the vast majority of couples are not at the same place on the journey. We're just we're two, two different people. I've found we're about, to, we're about to celebrate our 34th anniversary. I think it's going to work. As I said, I'm married to my first wife for 34 years. Um, and, um, and I have found over time, those two paths get, get pretty well, get pretty close together. But they weren't at the beginning, and it took a long time. I think part of the early, early days of marriage, and even I don't know how many years that might be, but for a while it takes time to get those expectations together. I would strongly encourage you to just really talk about it. Get it on the table. Communicate about it. Even be willing to say, you know, you, you're here and I'm here. And I, Linda and I have had that several times where, where she has said, you know, I, you, I'm here and you're here. You're here and I'm here. And so we recognized we weren't at the same place. And then we said, okay, so what, what does that mean? And so either she wasn't really willing and ready to take a step when I was or she was way out ahead of me and I was back here saying, I just don't know if I have the faith right now to go that direction. But I think we talked about it. I think that, that really is the key. So it's with finances. I mean, finances in marriage, number one reason, right? That marriages fall apart over finances. And I think the other one has a lot to do with time. Um, and it's interesting how much the two of them are connected, right? You're never home. Why aren't you ever home? Because I'm not trying to make a lot of money because you're spending it all. I'm not spending it all. You know, all that kind of stuff. So I think identify where you're at on that journey. Be willing to be honest and then talk about how can we continue to kind of help each other. And over time, have you found that, those of you who've been married a little bit longer? Have you found that over time, those, those two paths start getting closer and closer, and pretty soon, you're, you're, you're kind of walking pretty lockstep? Am I getting some yeses on that? A few? 
Yeses, nods. Wow, we're the only marriage that's ever done. Come on, guys, give me some nods, right? Am I right here? Well, I'm fishing here. Um, does that help? Okay, talk about it. And the same thing in a church community, right? When a church community wants to come together and do something, everybody's going to be at different places. And trying to get people kind of aligned around a vision. For some, it's a little step of faith. For some, they're already there saying, come on, guys, come on. And for others, they're way back here saying, I can't even believe we're thinking of going that direction. Have you, have you ever run into that situation? Anytime you bring change, you got people on this whole spectrum of where they are in their journey and how they view it. And so we just need to talk about it and get it aligned. Yeah, other questions? Thoughts, comments? Yes. Yeah, why, why have evangelicals been so late to the table on the environment? I think I, I have a pretty strong idea as to why it's the case. I think it's a combination of things, and I take it from my own childhood, okay? So when I was growing up in Wyoming, my, my dad was a hunter and a fisherman. We loved the outdoors. We loved being in the environment. We, we cared greatly for the environment. If you ask my mom and dad, do you care for creation? They would say, absolutely. If you ask them, um, do you believe we should take care of the environment? They'd say, ooh, not too sure. And if you said, are you an environmentalist? They would probably shoot you, okay? <laughs> um, and I'm kidding. My, they would never do that. But, but I was raised, you know, in a fairly conservative home that believed that when you talk about environmentalism, that was, a, that was, the, that was the bastion of the left. And what happened is, and just from, a, from I think from a biblical theological standpoint, there was, a, there was a gap when, 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 when the need for, for environmental care came along. I think most of the church was pretty heavily focused in the area of church planning and evangelism. And I think the left looked at it and they filled the gap with, with really what is what we call panentheism. In other words, they went beyond caring for creation and they actually deified creation. And one of the ways you see that, I've, I have respect for the Sierra Club, you know, and, and, and uh, John Muir and all of that. But Sierra Club has this thing about, about never having a picture with a, with a human being in it. You'll never see a calendar, usually ever, from the Sierra Club with a human being in it because they have this idea that creation is kind of sacred and all we ever do is mess it up. So the theology is all screwed up, right? That, that's completely wrong. Um, and so you've got, you've got this, this strong evangelical movement that's identified with, with very liberal politics. Um, it's the hippies out of the 60s. It's Greenpeace. I grew up thinking Greenpeace was like, Satan's own, you know, people out there taking, doing things they're supposed to be doing. Um, I would watch Whale Wars and root for the Japanese, okay? Just to let you know what's going on there. Um, seriously, you know, it's just, it just the, the whole environmental thing was this big evil thing because it was identified with this leftist, this leftist part over here. And then I think there was a, there's this um, dispensational theology on the, on the right I'm on your right, so it's okay. On the right, that, um, that really did have an eschatology that believed that, um, that because the earth was going to be destroyed, we really didn't have, that all we needed to do was, was use the resources for our good um, and, and not worry about the rest. So they sort of built a bit of a theology around the idea that caring for the environment for the sake of the environment was not something that the Christians should be concerned about. That's not evangelicalism, but that's a, a strand of it. But I think that combined with this strong anti-political left-wing environmental movement and the idea about panentheism and loving, crea and loving the creation and loving trees and things, those two together just always kept evangelicals at, at bay. We didn't want to be associated with the people who cared about the environment um, because that put us in this camp. Um, and out of that slowly is emerging some really rich theology, and it's all there. 
I mean, the Bible is just full of theology, of, of caring for creation and the beauty of creation and all the rest of it. So we just have to go back to our roots and pull it out and frame it in that very clear, distinct way that we don't worship the creation, we worship the creator, but we are obedient in caring for creation and this is what it looks like. Um, so I think that's a little bit about, at least from my childhood, that's what, that's what it was. Anybody, anything else? We okay? Is our nutrition break ready? Oh, yes. How far back? Oh, we need a microphone. I just want to say, uh, Pastor Ken, do you have yourself or another pastor that's ready to uh, take a bunch of people that need prayer on their finances? Because I'll be first. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. Wonderful. Anybody else? Any other thoughts, comments, anything to share, or questions, or challenges, or... Yes, back over here. You have a big voice? There you go. Put your God voice on. Um, more back to your comment about um, what pa pastors knowing what their parishioners yeah. are giving stuff. I mean, whether they do or they don't, it doesn't bother me. Uh, more so that is it always an indication if, say, tithes do drop off that something is wrong? Or, like in our case, we merely ask God what he wants us to do that particular week with cool. that money rather mm -hmm. than just, bli not blindly, but, you know, just giving yeah. right to, the, to, to that local uh, expression of faith, like maybe it would be to Hope Mission or maybe mm -hmm. another uh, mm -hmm. type of thing. Like, it's not always an indication that something is wrong, Absolutely. but maybe just an indication that, well, like you said, your, look at your year-end stuff, where is it all going? Sure, maybe something's very right yeah. in, how, in why you did that. Absolutely. Um, my whole point is, would you be offended if your pastor sat down with you and said, tell me about your stewardship journey. I noticed there's been a change in giving. And you shared that with him. He said, oh, man, I just want to bless you guys because you've listened to what God said. Let me just pray for you because that's a wonderful thing. And you guys pray together, and, and you get encouraged and, and, and go on. But he can minister to you in the decision you made, and that's the whole point. It's a way for a pastor one more time to get a, a, a look into your life and say, something's happened here. Let me come and minister to you and find out what that is. And I can either bless or correct or pray or whatever. So you're exactly right. It could be a very good reason why that happened. Um, it might be that a family member had, had some financial difficulties. And you decided for six months you're going to take a, some of that and give it to this person over there. Well, wouldn't you want your pastor praying for you and all that? Say, let's lift that person up. Let's pray. And what else can we do to help that person out? I mean, it's just, it's all about being open to minister and not being afraid of the fact that we can't talk about money. It's a great point. Thank you. Great point. Other thoughts, questions? Yes. Sure. Fifteen percent of you come under a curse. Ten percent, you're going to hell. And five percent, I don't even want to talk about it. It's just so bad. Um, I have some some kind of strong feelings on tithing, which may not, I guess, surprise you. Um, I don't think tithing is a New Testament principle. I think giving everything's a New Testament principle, and that's the challenge. 
I'm really, really challenged by this story of Jesus and the rich young ruler. And what I tell people is, take the story of the rich young ruler and put it side by side with the story out of Matthew of the uh, man plowing the field and finding the treasure in the field. It's an amazing little study to put those two side by side. Because what you find is in the one, Jesus goes, the rich young ruler comes to Jesus and says, what do I need to do to inherit the kingdom of God? Um, and he says, you know, do all these things. He says, I've done those. He said, great. The only thing you have left to do is just sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and come and follow me. It's just going to be the greatest thing you've ever done in your life. I mean, this is like freedom like you've never known. This is the greatest invitation you'll ever have in your whole life. Um, just sell it all, give it away, get rid of all that stuff. Come on, let's follow me. Let's go have a wonderful ministry together. And he goes away sad. It, it amazes me, not amazes me, but I, it was impressed upon me that the next verse doesn't say that Jesus ran after him and said, no, I was just speaking metaphorically. You don't really have to sell everything. It was just a, it was an object lesson. He lets him go, right? I mean, Jesus was serious. This wasn't, this wasn't some way we're supposed to take this mystically or anything like this. He flat out told the guy, sell everything you have, give it to the poor and come follow me. He goes away sad. So Jesus tells a parable about a man who's out plowing a field and all of a sudden hits something and he goes around, he digs it up, and what does he come up with? This treasure. Well, he doesn't own the field, right? He probably was leasing the field. So Jesus says he goes and does what? All together. Sells everything he has so that he might have the treasure. Well, Jesus is the treasure. The kingdom of God is the treasure. So you've got one person who found it and understood what he was had, and he gladly, in his joy, it says, sold everything he had and came running back to get the treasure. And the other one had the treasure handed to him, and he couldn't do it, and he walked away sad. The reason I bring that up is because I do think that um, it's all a question of, uh, back to kind of the question of ownership. To me, tithing asks the question, okay, you have 100%. God has zero. How much now of your hundred do you need to give to God's zero in order for it to be enough? And that's the question of tithing people ask. How much is enough? Well, enough to what? Well, enough not to make me feel guilty. Enough to make me feel like I'm a good steward. Enough so that I can sleep at night. Enough so that I can feel good about myself. How much, how much is enough? And it's always in essence, what's the least I can give and still feel good about myself, isn't it? Is 5% enough? 6% enough? 7% enough? When we turn it around and we do the equation the other way and we say, okay, God has 100% and I have zero, then the question goes like this. How much do I need to keep and spend on myself in order to live the life God would have me to live? And now all of a sudden we're saying, is 95% enough? Is 96% enough? And that sounds terrible, doesn't it? It sounds terrible to think that I've got to keep 90% of everything in order to just live the simple life that God created me to live um, in order for it to be enough. So I think we start with the equation of saying it's all God's. He says, look, here's the resources you have. What do you need to live a life that witnesses that you're a steward of, all, of everything you have? Live that life, pray over your giving decisions, and then give as generously as you possibly can beyond that. And it might be 5% this month, and it might be 20% next month, it might be 25% next year, it might be 2% for a while if something else happens. 
but is your heart a heart that says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to spend as little as I really need to and free up everything I can for the kingdom of God? And my first priority is my church, and I do believe that. That, that, that I buy. I think my first priority is, is my community of faith. And then when I have given what God puts on my heart, back to your point, what God puts on my heart, I give it to my community of faith, open me up, Lord, and let me give more broadly that's out there. So that's why, that's why I don't think the tithing question, the tithing question was tied so much to the agricultural life, all kinds of sacrificial system. I think Jesus just come and says, I want it all. I want it all. And when you've given it all to me, then we'll talk about how much do you need to live the life that you live and what kind of resources do you have, but it's still all his. Does that help? Okay. Yes. Give. Is, that a, is that the right yeah. approach? Like, I, I, it doesn't settle well with me when people, it's like prosperity, yep. gospel to me. If you, if you, yep. give, if you give, you're going to be guaranteed. Give because you're going to be guaranteed to get back. Mm -hmm. And, and it that's, just doesn't sit right with me. I just want to get your take yeah. on that. Well, it's, it's, again, it's one of the ways in which the enemy takes a biblical principle that God gives us out of grace and turns it into a contract. And, you know, I loved Oral Roberts and the university he built and everything, but I grew up watching him on TV, and, boy, he would look and talk about seed faith giving, and he would basically say, you give $100 today, and God will give you $1,000 back. You know, and later in life, he changed that and, and sort of repented from that whole approach. There's a lot of prosperity gospel out there that, that takes the promise where God does promise us. It's a biblical promise is why it sounds so good. Is that God says, test me in this, Right? Test me in this and just see what will happen if you're generous. And see if I don't throw open the, the storehouses. Um, I'm going to be your capital P provider. You can't outgive God. All those things of saying just try to be more generous than God and see what happens because he's just going to keep blessing and blessing. But then we take it and we turn it into an investment plan. Like, oh, I can get a 6% return in the market, but I can get an 8% return in the kingdom of God because if I give $10, he says he's going to give me 18 You know, and, and all of a sudden... It becomes this manipulative thing where we think somehow God owes us a return because we're being such a good steward. I've fallen into that. I've had a couple of times where I did something very generously and, and deep inside I could hear the enemy saying, oh man, God owes you big time. God owes you. Watch for it. He's going to just give you a big old blessing because you are such a good steward. Isn't that weird? But it happens. It's the enemy speaking into us. We've got to just say no. We give out an absolute joyous generosity and the fact that God would reward us richly for giving his resources to his work is amazing. But he does. And so prosperity, yeah, absolutely. He's a God of absolute abundance and prosperity. But it's not a quid pro quo. It's not an investment policy. And that's where we get into all kinds of trouble. It's the same reason the pastors will preach that, you, you know, if you're not driving an expensive car and doing really well financially, then there's something wrong in your life. And you're not being blessed by God and all the rest of that stuff. It's just a skewed a skewed understanding of, of wonderful biblical principles, I think. One more question? Yeah. Hi, I really struggle with um, saving and investing. With savings? Um, because I'd rather just give it away. Yeah. Um, but I know that we need to be really smart about it. Yeah. And, and there's, wow. there's stuff in the Bible about just having an inheritance for your children, and I know that that's a godly inheritance, and you're passing down all of that, but you don't want to be a burden either, and so... Wow. I'm going to take my jacket off and get another bottle of water. <laughs> this is it's such a great question. It is such a great question. And, and in all seriousness, 
it, it is so complex, I think. Um, and, and let's see if I can try to give you a, a simple a, a sense of where my heart is, whether it's right or wrong, I don't know, but we're also kind of struggling on this together. Um, it, there's a tension. And I think we need to recognize that I think that there is a, a planned, intentional tension that is set up for us between not, not um, saving up for ourselves treasures on earth, but also being a wise builder and counting the cost before we build. And those, those are usually the two that can kind of come hand in hand in all of that. So I think it's the, I, I, I don't it sound like a cop-out, but I do think it's the, the thing where you need to go before God and find your place of peace. But I think you're asking exactly the right question that we all have to ask. The problem is when we don't ask the question. The problem is when we just put money away and put money away and save money up without asking the question, is this really the use that God would have me use these funds? One of my colleagues um, at a fairly young age had built up a very sizable retirement plan because of his job, and he really felt that God was saying to him to liquidate the entire thing and give it into ministry, and then just to trust him. Now, how many of us want to do that? Take our pensions right now and just liquidate them all and go put them into ministry. But for him, it was exactly the right thing to do. The thing is, he was asking the question, Lord, what do I do? What do I do with this money? Um, there's a couple of, of of concerns and red flags, I think, when it comes to savings and investment. And that is that we be, it's easy for us to begin to shift our security into our finances, right? And when you start building up a really big, strong retirement plan, and you've got a lot of money put away, who are you trusting for your future? You kind of, you, it's easy for our spirits, isn't it, to begin to shift that trust into the money that we have, into the account that we have, and stop trusting God. I think that's sometimes why, I hate to say it, why a 2008 comes along. And all of a sudden, people get wiped out, and, they have, and, and they're back on their knees going, God, help me day by day. Well, we're supposed to be on our knees day by day, asking God to help me day by day. So we've got to find that balance of how much is enough that I feel like I'm responsible. Because people will say, I don't want to be a burden to my kids. I don't want to end up, you know, in, in the, living in my kid's basement because I didn't put anything away. And that doesn't look like a good steward, does it? I didn't save up anything, put anything away, and now I need money. I've got nothing. But on the other hand, we have to be careful how much we take of God's resources, these are all his, and put them away for our security. So it's a good question. I'd say keep asking it. You'll find a balance. God will give you a balance where you feel like this is enough. If it's too much, take some away and, and do something with it. If it's not enough, maybe add to it. Look for that. The, the big question where this is coming up, and the reason that I, is, is when we talk about endowments. And I talked with the, the group in here about but I wrote a, a monograph for the Evangelical Council for Financial Accountability on, on endowment keeping and how what a challenge it is for our educational institutions and some of our other bigger institutions, even our denominations and some of our churches who have this passion to build as big an endowment as they possibly can. I mean, I have never heard, never heard a president of an institution say, our endowment's too big. We have too much money in our endowment. We don't need any more money in our endowment. Thank you. Keep your money. We have way too much here. Um, it's just, it can't get too big. It just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And, and what I said in my paper, which got me in some trouble, but it's this very fact that if Jesus returned today, there are two things that would be an absolute certainty. He would find on earth countless millions of people who don't know the gospel, who are living in poverty, and who don't have their needs met because they don't have the resources to do it. 
Second, he would find is hundreds of billions of dollars sitting in the endowments of Christian organizations. Can we live with that? Can we live with that? And I just put it out there as to say, do we have the mechanisms to actually go before God to say, is this really what, what you want me to do with $150 million? Is this the best thing for the kingdom of God? Um, and then be able to go accordingly. So it's, again, it's asking the right questions and just being challenged. Maybe it is. Maybe, maybe that's what God wants it, and that's an important thing. But if we don't ask the question, we will just uncritically throw money, throw money at, at retirement plans and endowments and, and all the rest of it um, when we have a world dying you know, out there for, for things we could do if we had resources. Good question. Thank you. Is there another one? No. Okay. Now are we ready for our break? <sighs> Wonderful. Let's go have some food.